Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Witzel, who has a fancy new toy. Yeah, funny what happens when uh, you throw a uh, new microphone on your birthday list. I did a little bit of research on kind of you know what works well, so I've got a uh, new lavalier microphone uh, attached to me because I've noticed my, my sound quality the last couple episodes hasn't been as good, so I'm hoping that this episode, we get a little bit better. Also, I think it's appropriate that with your new technology, we have a new decade in which to start talking about the World Series. So I think it's kind of appropriate considering how sound quality has improved over the years. So I think from 1940 onward, we'll get a better sound out of this. Am I wrong in saying that? I don't think you're wrong at all, and uh, hopefully that proves prophetic. Okay, so let us get into this 1940 World Series, and we get a reprieve from the New York Yankees dynasty because they are not going to be in this one, but we do have their opponents from last year, the Cincinnati Reds making it back to the World Series, and they are still looking for their first non-tainted World Series championship, their only other title coming when the Black Sox threw the 1919 World Series. They had no chance against the Yankees last year. But the Reds, they have that one-two punch of Bucky Walters and Paul Derringer back in force at the top of their rotation. And they end up winning the National League pennant by 12 games over the Dodgers. And it was actually kind of a tumultuous year for the Reds because Ernie Lombardi, the future Hall of Fame catcher, was out with an injury in August. Willard Hirschberger was their backup catcher who was filling in for him at the moment. There was a game in which he blamed himself for a loss because he thought he called the wrong pitches for Walters and he became overwhelmed by the pressure of the National League pennant race, so he ended up committing suicide. So what happened was Jimmy Wilson, who was a coach for the Reds that year, uh, he ended up having to come out of retirement. He had previously been an all-star catcher, not for the Reds, but he hadn't caught regularly for five years. And he was among those who helped get the Reds back to the World Series. Keep in mind, this guy is 40 years old, hasn't caught for a few years, and in the midst of this unbelievable tragedy he comes out and does what he needs to do to basically just let the reds tread water until they can get this pennant which they do indeed yeah so jimmy wilson in his career spent 17 seasons between the phillies and the cardinals finished in the top 20 in mvp voting three times made a couple all-star teams one in st louis and one in Philadelphia and then you mentioned coming in ends up playing 16 games for this 1940 Red squad and really just to kind of help tread water for this team but it ends up working out um I don't know that I'm necessarily thrilled with this Reds offense they only hit about 266 as a team scored just a hair over 700 runs I mean you go through Jimmy Ripple only playing 39 games though hitting 298 I look up and down this lineup and there's just, I'm not really wild. I mean, Ernie Lombardi, I guess, did hit 319 in 109 games. Frank McCormick with a 309 average, a team-high 19 home runs for this squad. I'm more impressed with their pitching staff, though. We already mentioned the one-two punch of 
Walters and Derringer, but you had a 16 and nine record for Gene Thompson, a 14 and seven mark for Jim Turner. So I mean, pitching wise, this Reds team is pretty good. A team 305 ERA in 1940. Indeed, the Reds are anchored, like we said, by this one-two punch of Walters and Derringer, combining for 42 wins. But you also neglected to mention, Lucas, that Frank McCormick, the big Reds offensive weapon, led the National League with 191 hits, 44 doubles, 127 RBIs. That was enough to name him National League MVP. So as unimpressive as the Reds lineup on a whole is, all things considered, they still had the best player in the National League that year. So you have to tip your hats to McCormick for leading this Reds offense to what turned out to be a decisive pennant win. Very much so, a 12-gamer. And let's go take a look at their American League opponent as it's a face we've seen a few times, but they only have, I think, one title to their name so far, if memory serves. Yes, that was actually the last time they were in the World Series in 1935, and that was the last time a team besides the New York Yankees represented the American League in the World Series. The Detroit Tigers were managed by Del Baker. He decided to put Hank Greenberg in left field to open up first base for Rudy York, who at that time was young and not a good fielder, but a big slugger. And Greenberg, it didn't seem to affect him a bit. He won the AL MVP, hit 340, led the AL with 41 homers, 150 ribbies, 50 doubles. York, meanwhile, 134 RBIs, 33 home runs, 888 runs for the Tigers' offense. Uh, Pitching-wise, you had Bobo Newsom, 21-5. and five. He was the runner-up in the AL ERA race to Bob Feller. And he was supported by 16-3 Schoolboy Row, 12-9 Tommy Bridges. And actually, when you take a look at this rotation, Newsom was the only sub-3 ERA pitcher for the Tigers, 2.83, Bridges 3.37, Row 3.46. And that just goes worse from there when you look at this Tigers rotation from 1940. So I guess it should be no surprise that they and Cleveland uh, they were distracted from their neck-and-neck neck race by the hard-charging Yankees, who were in dead last in May, and they rose within two games of the pennant by season's end. Obviously, it was not enough. The Tigers win the pennant. So maybe if the Tigers had a better pitching performance out of their rotation as a whole, this would have been much less of a race. Alas, it wasn't to be, but maybe that late season charge by Cleveland and New York was, well, okay, maybe not Cleveland so much, but New York especially is what they needed to get them over the top. Yeah, on paper, this pitching staff, not that great. You know, you went through kind of the individual numbers. As a team, the Tigers posted a 401 ERA. They did strike out 752 batters, which is a pretty good number. That was paced by... Newsom and Bridges combining for just shy of 300 strikeouts between the two of them. And the other big player from the last Tigers World Series champion, uh, Charlie Geringer, he was towards the end of his career at this point, but still have 428 on base percentage. So nice to see Geringer still contribute. But let's get into this 1940 World Series. Now, the series opens at Crosley Field in Cincinnati, which is where the last World Series ended. Al Schacht, the famous baseball clown, he had an exhibition pregame which involves two giant baseball gloves. And the game was won by Newsom. 
and he outpitched Derringer for a 7-2-2 win. So, nice start for the Tigers. Yeah, very much so. They took advantage early on after neither team was able to get anything going in the first inning. In the second inning, you have back-to-back singles by Hank Greenberg and Rudy York. Bruce Campbell tries to lay down a sacrifice bunt, and Reds third baseman Billy Werber makes an errant throw to first. Everybody is safe. Pinky Higgins follows that up with a two-run single. Dick Bartell with another two-run single later in the inning. Uh, Barney McCoskey rounds out the scoring with a follow-up RBI single to that, making it 5 nothing Tigers just an inning and a half into the game. And they're able to more or less go on cruise control, especially after Bruce Campbell added a two-run home run in the top of the fifth. Also of note, a combined four errors in this game, three of them by the Reds. Drink. Game two, not a whole lot to talk about. Well, I guess you'll get into that in a little bit. Walters ends up taking the mound for the Reds, and he wins 5-3 with the help of two hits from one Jimmy Wilson. So I bet Wilson didn't think when the season started that in game two of the World Series he'd be having two hits. No, probably not, but you know he ends up uh, doing his job, goes 2-4 for four in the game with a run scored. Scores the game-tying run in the bottom of the second to really help the Reds get going. Game 3, the scene shifts to Detroit, which is now called Tiger Stadium, not Naven Field. It becomes the Tiger Stadium name by now, the name that we are most familiar with with this particular stadium. The Tigers score six runs in the final two innings on home runs by York and Michael Pinky Higgins. They win this game by a score of 7-4. Yeah, complete game victory for Tommy Bridges allows four runs, three of them earned on ten hits. Walked one, struck out five. A solid outing, all told. I mean, able to get the uh, run support that he needed there late in the game. And the Reds with a little bit of a comeback effort. They score one run in the eighth and two in the ninth to make it interesting. But end up leaving two men on bases. Mike McCormick striking out to end the game. Derringer comes out to pitch for the Reds in game four. Of course, we know that he lost the first game. Comes back on short rest. And I should mention that this is yet another World Series in which there are no days off. So, I mean, I guess to be fair, Cincinnati and Detroit aren't that far of a distance. But then again, you're talking about Western Ohio and, well, I think maybe more like Southwest Ohio and then the east side of Michigan. So I guess you can justify not having any days off. I think it's close enough. I mean, we were, we've been able to do a lot of stuff kind of along the east coast and to, um, you know, Detroit to Chicago. We've done a quick Google search Cincinnati to Detroit is about a four-hour drive. So, I mean, that's pretty comparable, actually, I would say, to a uh, Detroit to Chicago run. Yes. So, Derringer, like I said, he came out on short rest, wins this game by a score of 5-2. to two. So, the series is deadlocked at two wins for both teams. The Reds win this game on 11 hits, and they get those five runs out of that. Get the early lead going, put up two runs in the first, an RBI double by Ival Goodman, and then Jimmy Ripple reaching on a uh, 
booted ball by third baseman Pinky Higgins. Drink. And then add a run onto that Jimmy Ripple with an RBI double in the top of the third makes it three to nothing. The Tigers really unable to get much closer than that. They pull within a couple of runs a couple of times, but that five two margin ends up being your final. So Newsom takes the mound for the Tigers in game five, and he's actually doing it with a heavy heart. His father was in the stands for game one when he won that game, and then the next day he drops dead of a heart attack. And, of course, now he is pitching in front of his home fans. And people are obviously very empathetic towards what he is going through right now. A reporter at the game said Newsom was the quote-unquote first pitcher in history to work a World Series game with no heckling from opponents, bench jockeys, and coaches. And he shuts the Reds out on three hits. The final score for this one is... 8 to nothing. The Tigers have to win one more game to win the World Series. And, of course, the Tigers had to support Newsom. They did just that. Uh, five Tigers had at least two hits, including a three-run homer from Greenberg. Yeah, that three-run homer from Greenberg came in the bottom of the third. It opened the scoring. The Tigers ended up leaving two men on base in each of the first two innings before finally breaking through in the third, and Newsom able to just go on cruise control the rest of the way. And a ton of credit to him. You know, I, I can't imagine having to turn around and go out and perform like that after your dad passes away. Early ancestor to the Brett Favre Monday night game against the Oakland Raiders type performance here, except on a much bigger stage. And we go back to Cincinnati for game six and a potential game seven, but the Reds do have Walters and Derringer lined up to pitch in those games, so all's not lost for the Reds. Walters does his part in game six. He pitches a five-hit shutout, and he hits a home run. The Reds win this one by a score of 4 to nothing, And we have talked about this before. Walters was a third baseman previously. We talked about that in the last episode. He was a 243 lifetime hitter. So Walters helping his cause on both sides. The Reds make two inconsequential errors in this game. The Tigers don't make any. And the Reds lead this one from the first inning onward. Yeah, so Bucky Walters, I mean, we, we mentioned the... Um shift over he had an injury with some torn cartilage which today would be repairable and obviously not in the late 1930s into the 40s uh walters became the fourth player in world series history to hit a home run as a pitcher in a world series game to this point uh you had a pair of new york giants pull off the feet in 1924 rosie ryan in Game 3, and Jack Bentley in Game 5, and then Jesse Haynes of the Cardinals pulled off the feet in Game 3 of the 26 World Series. So we go to Game 7. I think it's appropriate that Derringer and Newsom are the pitchers for this game. Derringer, just because he's been so effective, and Newsom, who obviously at this point has become a sentimental favorite. Of course, he pitched very well during the season. So, you know, you really have the best pitcher for Detroit and arguably the second best pitcher for Cincinnati going at it. Uh, the Tigers get out to an early lead. They score a run of third on singles by Billy Sullivan. His father, by the way, caught for the White Sox in the 1906 World Series. So the World Series has been around long enough at this point that we are getting father-son combos in the World Series. So 
Very nice stuff there. Garinger also has a single in that inning. But the Reds come back in the seventh inning. They take a 2-1 to lead on back-to-back doubles by McCormick and Jimmy Ripple. Derringer makes that lead hold up. The Tigers go down in the 8th and the ninth. They clinch the World Series championship. The Reds do their first non-tainted World Series championship. And I'm sure for the Reds fans who remember the 1919 World Series, they're probably like, finally, we could say we have a World Series championship. We can definitively say that we earned on our own. Oh, yeah. No, they definitely did, especially being able to come back from that 3-2 series deficit, especially when it kind of seems like destiny is on the side of the Tigers with Bobo Newsom and his Game 5 performance, and then with him going back on the mound on just a single day of rest, by the way, in Game 7. And to be able to go through and for six innings be lights out before just running out of gas there in the seventh, giving up those back-to-back doubles, the uh, Jimmy Ripple double tying the game, and a Billy Myers sack fly to center ultimately being the game-winning ball in play for the Cincinnati Reds. Just to look at some of the notes here for this, uh, Bill Werber of the Reds actually leads all the regulars with a 370 batting average. Newsom has a 2-1 record and a 1.38 ERA. You you could make the argument that you could have awarded a World Series MVP had they given this award to a player from the losing team. But um, somehow, I personally doubt it, but I think it's because we only had one World Series MVP come from the losing team. I mean, if we're looking World Series MVP, I mean, you figure it's got to be one of either Walters or Derringer, given that they combined for all four Reds wins in this World Series. So I guess it's just a question of do you go with the... I don't know. I, I think just kind of looking at the numbers on the whole, my pick would be Bucky Walters for two starts, a 2-0 and record, 1.5 ERA, a sub 0.8 whip, walked only six guys, struck out six guys, allowed just eight hits and three runs over 18 innings of World Series ball. I think he's my pick. Yeah, I'd say he's my pick as well. Yeah, sure, Derringer had a pretty decent series on his own, but he also picked up a loss, and He had 10 walks in this particular World Series, which led all pitchers. So I'm pretty sure that alone disqualifies him from consideration. But Jimmy Wilson, a very impressive World Series for having just come out of retirement, albeit temporarily, hits 353 in the series. And this ends up being it for him as far as playing, because the very next season... He takes the managerial job with the Cubs. And I'd say that's a damn fine way to go out. I mean, it's almost out of Hollywood right here. Lucas, do me a favor. Tell me again what they say about Hollywood scripts and real-life baseball events. And really, it's not just baseball. I feel like it's more sport in general. Sport is the ultimate, I don't know if reality TV is kind of the phrase to use, but it's one of those things that... Any storyline you see in sports would be immediately written off and thrown in the trash by any Hollywood producer because it's too cheesy and it's too impossible. And yet, as we have seen time and time again in the course of this podcast, 
the impossible happens with regularity. And just so crazy to think that we're only in 1940, so we're not even near the halfway point here. So we're going to be seeing this time and time again. And it happens quite a bit. And I know that we are just going to continue to be just floored by some of what we're seeing here. And maybe that will include something for our next episode uh, I hope the Reds fans got enough celebrating at Fountain Square because they're not going back to the World Series the next year. Uh, our old friend the Yankees are back, and it's another inner-city World Series, but not with the Giants as we have grown used to. It's that team from that little borough in New York City that is going to try their shot at knocking out the best team in baseball at that time. Does the Yankees dynasty continue after a year-long break, or does that other New York team have something to say about that? You're going to have to tune in next week to find out. That's right. So for Lucas Smithsell, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thank you for listening to our 1940 episode. Then there were two in History of the World Series. You can like us on Facebook, and you can follow us on Twitter, too. I think we're at that point now where we know, I think, that Twitter is not going to collapse on itself. So be sure to follow us there. Also, be sure to subscribe. We will see you next time. <laughs>